I hope you will I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness. But you are already doing that. I'm a I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not, because I do not love you? God knows I do, and I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want, me, want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. This is the word of the Lord. God, indeed. So we are going through a series on what it means to live in the power of the resurrection. But it means that we are, in a sense, children of the resurrection, living in the time between Christ's death on the cross and Christ's second coming. I'm going to start today by asking you a question. It's going to seem like an odd question. What do you think Satan is doing in this period. Now, now, I'm asking that question because Satan, in fact, bookends this passage. When we look at verses 3, we see, but I am afraid, just like Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, a reference there to Satan, your mind may somehow be led astray from your sincere, sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Also, we see again Unlike the picture you may have in your head of a red devil wearing blue pants and horns and a tail, we see Satan again represented, this time in verse 14. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Masquerading as an angel of light. This image of Satan bookending both ends of this passage. We know that the cross was victory over Satan, that Satan was defeated on the cross. And for those who are students of history, especially of uh, world wars, that's sort of the equivalent of the D-Day invasion at Normandy. Once the Allied forces had landed back in Europe, 
It was just a matter of time before the war was over. The victory was basically sealed. And the second coming, if you want to continue that analogy, is like VE Day, where the victory was won in complete capitulation. And then that day is like the second coming or Satan dethroned. And we're in this period in between. And one author, you may know, be familiar with, Toza, says that in this period in between, the world has been booby-trapped by the devil. And in fact, all throughout the book of Corinthians, Paul is talking about the types of booby traps that get in the way of the church. In 2, chapter 2, verse 10, he talks about Satan trying to unwit us with his schemes. In chapter 4, verse 3, he talks about how Satan tries to veil the gospel. And here in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 13, he talks about false teachers. Let me read that to you. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. And then he goes on. So we see here that there's a problem, that the church is vulnerable, that the booby trap of the false teacher and the false teaching is out there to entrap us. And as we work through this passage today, and I'm going to say it is, a, it is a somewhat torturous route or a convoluted route, we're going to see that we come to the conclusion that the solution to false teaching is resurrection humility. And we're going to look at that through two lenses. First of all, we're going to look at chapter, uh, verses 1 through 4, Paul as father of the bride, and then verses 5 through 11, Paul as minister of the gospel. So first of all, Paul as father of the bride, and then Paul as minister of the gospel. So let's jump into Paul as father of the bride. Now, why would you use this metaphor? Why would you use the metaphor of, as Paul being father of the bride? Let me read the first two verses. I hope you will put up with me for being a little foolish. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealous, but I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So this is a foolish metaphor. He says it himself, allow me to be a little bit foolish. Allow me to play around a little bit here. It's a metaphor that clearly isn't going to make a lot of sense to the Corinthians, but it's grounded in the love of the father of the bride. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding, but there is nothing like the faces of the parents of the bride. They are just enamored with the product of their upbringing, in a sense. They look at their daughter and they just think, wow, look at this radiant bride. Look at this bride that, that we have invested in, that we have uh, brought up, that we have suffered for, that we have seen and done everything we can to make them flourish. And parents, of course, do that. They invest their whole life in their children in a, in a way which is healthy, if they are healthy, in terms of sacrificing for them. That is a one-way love. It's a love which, although it is reciprocated, the premise of the parental love doesn't require the child to reciprocate it. Parents will give and give and give and give. And so Paul here is saying 
I see myself as the father of the bride, Corinthian church, and you are the bride, and I see you as the father of the bride. And I can't wait at the wedding feast of the Lamb when Jesus says, who gives this church to me, this bride to me? Paul can say, I do. I do. It was my love that brought this church to you, Christ. So first of all, in this foolish metaphor, we see this deep, sacrificial love of Paul for the church. Secondly, in verse 2a, we see he talks about the jealousy of God. Now, infidelity begets jealousy. We tend to think of jealousy as being a negative emotion, and it is negative in one sense because in that sense, if someone has been, has been, has engaged in some sort of adulterous behavior and you experience that jealousy. It's negative in the sense that you experience it, but it's an appropriate response. Should you shrug it off and say, oh, well, oh, well, they had an affair and not care? Of course, that's going to bring up feelings of jealousy for you. Now, we're not talking about destructive or corrosive jealousy, the ones that, that's induced by paranoia or jealousy which is induced to control. We're talking about the type of jealousy that God has for his people. And Paul is saying, I have that godly jealousy. I have that expectation of faithfulness, and I am hearing and seeing you wandering from the truth. I'm seeing you no longer pure and sincere in your devotion to Christ. I see you wandering, and I have the jealousy of God. And it's not just the jealousy, it's not just the mind there. Because it's also the heart of Christ. Paul has the mind and the heart of Christ. He can see that they're straying, but he also is deeply troubled by it, uh, experiencing the jealousy of Christ. And he's not jealous of them for who they are, nor is he jealous of the false apostles. He's jealous for God. And this jealousy brings up the language of betrothal. It's God's jealousy, and he sees himself as betrothed to his people. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. In the New Testament, it's the church. And the unfaithfulness of Israel and the unfaithfulness of the church invoke a jealous response in God. And by, by the very fact that Paul is so connected, so committed to the church in Paul on behalf of God. So we have this foolish metaphor that shows that love, that covenant commitment. And finally, in the second half, we see that he has promised, Paul has promised, this church to be presented as a pure virgin. Uh, and it's easy for us to get caught up automatically in that language. The word, uh, certainly, there's a sense in which when we hear the word virgin, we get confused or, or troubled by the fact that it seems to apply just to the woman in this context, or we get caught up with this idea that, okay, you know what, I'm, I, I haven't maintained my sexual purity, and it looks like it's a one-and-done deal. Neither of those things are true. First of all, while sexual purity is important, there is grace. It is not a sin of non-recovery, and relationships and lives can be put back on track. And secondly, this metaphor for infidelity or this, this metaphor for purity, in effect, also applies to the groom in this case because Christ remains sinless for his bride. It is not one-sided imagery. So this is, again, picking up on this language of sexual fidelity, of chastity. 
and it fits the language of jealousy. It's appropriate for the language and the relationship we have with God. So Paul is concerned here that they are flirting with a false gospel. We see in verse 3, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The serpent represents Satan, and the corruption of the world at creation by Satan is then being re-implemented here with the corruption of the church or the new creation by Satan. He's seducing them into spiritual adultery. Now, we have to ask the question, how? How is Satan seducing them into spiritual adultery? Well, we see in verse 4, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one that you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So we're seeing here in verse 4 how Satan does it is by having one of his minions preach a corrupted gospel. And it's important here to see that he's not saying they're preaching a completely radically different out-of-this-world non-gospel message. It's a corrupted gospel, still using the words of the gospel. It's still false teachers which are using tempting language or, or seductive language or language which sounds Christian. It's certainly not someone that's saying something that's denying the cross or the resurrection even. This is people who are preaching a gospel which is just slightly distorted. It has an appeal to it, but it also still has the vocabulary of the gospel. And Paul is saying, you suffer that way too easily. Where's your radar? Why haven't you detected this false gospel? Why haven't you heard it? You, you, you listen, you put up with it easily enough. That's a, a condemnation, a criticism by Paul to them. Now, this, uh, what is this that they're preaching? Now, although it's not explicitly laid out in the, uh, the text, commentators agree by looking from, at both verses 16 to 33, which Adrian is going to preach on next week, which looks at that boasting, and from the rest of this passage, that what they're really talking about here is a type of triumphalism, a gospel without suffering. You see, the whole point of this text is in some ways to prepare us for the second half of the chapter, which Adrian will preach next week, where Paul says, okay, you know what? You want to listen to these false teachers? You want to listen, look at their resumes? Let me boast. Let me tell you what my resume is. And then he flips us on his head. And instead of telling them, giving them the resume, the padded resume with all the achievements, he goes through suffering after suffering after suffering. He's basically saying a gospel without suffering is a distorted gospel. So you can do that without getting rid of the cross. You just play the cross down and play up glory. Preach a Jesus full of miracles, but short on suffering. Triumph without atonement. Sanctifi sanctification without repentance. Take all Christ has to offer without having to take up your cross. Claim your inheritance without taking on the responsibility of being a child of God. 
And it's an easy gospel to sell, right? I like that gospel. No suffering, no responsibility. Just power, miracles, glory, sanctification, and inheritance. No one needs to suffer, they're saying, for the gospel cause. But this is a different Jesus. This is a different spirit. And this is a different gospel to the one that Paul taught them. So we move on then to verses 5 to 11, the section we labeled minister of the gospel. Here Paul is presenting himself as a minister of the gospel. Ironically, the very thing which the apostle, the false apostles, or what Paul has designated the super apostles, are pushing back against Paul and saying, no, he's a fraud, he's a phony, he's not any good. We are the super apostles. We are the ones with the true message. So here we are, two competing people, the super apostles for the title minister of the gospel and Paul the apostle for the title of minister of the gospel. Now, what does Corinthian triumphalism look like? Well, Corinth, like most big cities, like the Sydneys, the New York, the Londons, was a place you went to succeed. It was a strongly success-oriented culture. And much like Australia and New Zealand, USA and Canada, Boston, Red Sox and the New York Yankees, they had a strong competitive relationship with Athens. You see, Athens considered itself to be the heart of philosophy, the heart of culture, of Greek culture. But, but the Corinthians were the sort of like the commercial center, and they thought they were the ones who were the philosophers, they were the ones who had the wisdom, that they were at the pinnacle of Greek culture. And here we see, uh, and Greek culture, by the way, philosophy in Greek culture uh, and rhetoric was almost a profession. You would go around and you would get paid for doing it. And what's going on here is these false teachers are taking the value of the culture and they're bringing them into the church. They're overlaying the cultural need to be great philosophers and teachers, to be wonderful at rhetoric, uh, and they're overlaying it onto the church. They're bringing those values in. These super apostles, these masqueraders uh, are as servants of righteousness, uh, these masqueraders of servants of the masquerader of the angel of light. And Paul takes them to, part, to task at this. They're trying to supersede him. They're trying to distort his message. They're trying to distort the cross. They're trying to say that you don't have to, to be all in. You can just take the goods and move on. You don't have to commit your life. You don't have to be, you don't have to submit. There's no suffering involved in this relationship with God. There's no cost in the way you live your life. And Paul takes him to task with that. He starts, uh, they're saying, we're the real apostles because we teach with great skill. We are great with the rhetoric. We are great with the philosophy. And even more so, we're so good that you paid us. You gave us your money. And in five to seven this is where Paul really hits them home. I do not think I am the least inferior, in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be an untrained speaker, but I do have knowledge. 
We have made it perfectly clear to you in every way. Uh, we have made this perfectly clear to you in every, in every way. What, uh, what is a sin for me? Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel to you free of charge? So if you're a Corinthian, you need a resume. You need uh, a big padded uh, to, to preach there. They want to see that you're one of the big boys on the block, one of the philosopher kings, so to speak. But Paul is saying it's content, not style. It's not what you pay for. It's how much someone pays for it. For example, Paul himself says, yeah, I did preach free of charge. It was free to you but I was basically supported by the Macedonian church and I tent-mate while I was there. So it wasn't free, it cost a lot, but that cost was not put on you. Now, he then goes on to make with his boasting that we talked about in the second half of this text, he goes on to make doctrinal corrections that suffering is an expected mark of the gospel. And we can stop here actually. How many of us can embrace suffering as a mark of the gospel? How many of us think in our lives the only thing that matters is how the gospel is outworked in every area of my life? Suffering is a natural part of that. Or how many of us avoid, dodge, skip, white lie or avoid ways of suffering. And I'm not asking you the question just intellectually. Do you intellectually assent to the idea that suffering is part of the gospel? Because it's, it's important for us to understand that a false gospel also exists when the cross isn't necessarily absent from our doctrine, but is absent from the way we live our life, from our lifestyle. And we could stop here too, it's convicting enough. But let's go on to generalize the point that Paul is making. Do we bring other cultural need into the church and project it as triumphalism? And it becomes really easy to point a broad finger here, right? We could point to those who need to feel self-righteous and say, are they drawn, for example, to the holiness tradition? Or those who need to feel powerful and in control? Are they drawn to the charismatic traditions? Or are those that need to feel intellectually superior drawn to the reformed traditions? Can you name your triumphant poison? Now, let's take a minute to defend the Corinthians for a moment and maybe ourselves at least a little, right? I would hope that a holiness tradition pastor who loved his flock and preached the gospel truthfully would lead to someone who felt the need to be self-righteous would move away from that. Because certainly the pursuit of righteousness is good, but the need to feel self-righteous and belonging is not. And I would hope that someone who is a pastor in a strongly charismatic church would help someone who came to that congregation, would point them away from this need to feel powerful and in control, because certainly 
Confronting and being engaged with the Holy Spirit is positive, but needing to feel powerful and control is not. And I would hope that a pastor of a Reformed tradition would help people who came with this need to feel intellectually superior to work through that, to repent from that and move on. Because certainly the rigor of doctrine is good, but the need to feel intellectually superior is not. There is nothing wrong with desiring to be holy or wanting to encounter the Holy Spirit in powerful ways or with intellectually rigorous doctrine. It's when we allow ourselves to be sold a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. It's when these desires lead us to start philandering with spiritual snakes in the grass, listening to a false gospel. And we need a test. We need to know how do we tell if someone is a spiritual snake? How do I tell if I'm listening to a false gospel? Now, we move on then to looking at the connection between the content of this passage and the structure of this passage. On a simple reading, we could say that the big flaw here is that super apostles make super Christians. That's a folly. It draws us all into triumphalism, right? If you follow a super leader because he's going to make you a super Christian, that's foolishness. There is no super apostle and there are no super Christians. And if we could look at the really simple structure of the text, verses 5, don't be fooled by titles like super apostles, or verse 6, don't be fooled by style like a type of rhetoric, or gifted speaking, or don't be fooled by the price you pay, whether you pay nothing to hear the gospel or whether you, you pay a lot to hear the gospel. But there's a better test than this, and it's important for us to see this. And it's a two-stage test. The first thing is we need to be, be able to test the truth of the gospel being preached. In verses 10 and 11, we see, as surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia and will stop this boasting of mine. You see, what Paul is saying is that he himself, as an apostle, has the truth of Christ in him. And so his letters, his epistles, his word, which makes up scripture, is the source of truth, not the false teachings of other apostles. And so there's a sense here where this text is really telling us we need to submit to Scripture, the Scripture that Paul has written, the Scripture of the other apostles. We need to, to come to Scripture not just in some sort of rote or light-hearted or pro-forma way. We need to digest this truth that was in Paul, that's in the Scripture, that's in the Word, that comes from Christ, the truth of Christ. And this means doing it in submission prayer, letting it search our hearts letting ourselves ask the question. If you're in a relationship, if, especially if you're married, you know that when you first met your spouse, you th when you first got married, you thought you knew them really well. And then if you've been married <laughs> for five years, you think, now I know them really well. If you've been married for 10 years, you think, now I know them really well. I can see Gail laughing. How long have you been married for, Gail? <laughs> if you've been married for a long time, then you know your spouse really well. Is that true, Gail? Yeah. Yes, that's true. And you know what? That's because you live life with them. You spend time in humility 
submitting to one another. If you're married, and I, and I hopefully because you have humility, your marriages do last uh, for, for the length of your earthly lives, they are refining, they are transforming, they shape who you are, you get to know the other person. And you need to have that type of living relationship with Christ. You need to be willing to submit through Scripture in prayer. You need to digest that Scripture and say, you know what, I really don't like that. Just like I don't like the way that Charlie stacks the dishwasher, I don't like Jesus' view on this. And then you wrestle it through and you submit to it. You are transformed by it and you know it in your heart. You have the jealousy for the gospel that Paul has earlier in this passage. You need to be in that place, first of all, to know if someone's a false prophet, to know if someone is a snake in the grass trying to lead you astray. You need to know the gospel, and you won't know the gospel unless you know Christ, and you won't know Christ unless you relate to him in submission, in prayer, true humility to the scripture, true relational, long-term, committed, lifetime humility. Second piece of this is that you need to test the motives of the preacher or the teacher or the friend who's talking to you. You see, this passage is structured deliberately in these two ways. Paul begins with this foolishness, I am the father of the bride. I am the one who pours my heart out for you. I am the one who sacrifices to see you flourish. I love you unconditionally as much as I can. I have poured into you and invested everything into you because I love you as Christ loves you. What is the motivation? You know, if you, if you humbly submit to Scripture and you listen to people, you can tell. You can tell when they're manipulating you. I can tell when I'm, even when I'm telling the truth to my wife, I can tell when I'm being manipulative. I can tell when I'm saying, you know what? It would be a very godly thing if you did this, which may even be true. But it's not done out of love. It's done because that would make my life easier. But because I don't like some particular characteristic or behavior, right? That's manipulative. That's coercive. That's being a snake in the grass. That is being a false teacher. That is not loving well. And so being sensitive to and aware of and present to that manipulation is really important. Looking for those snakes in the grass. And you know what? This text is not theoretical. In verse 4, it says, for if someone comes to you, it really should read, for as someone, and, and, and more than, as a bunch of someone's has already come to you. You see, there, and we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about purity, their sincere and pure devotion to Christ has waned and does wane, and so does ours. And you know what? So does every preacher's and every teacher's and every friend's and every spouse. In some way, small parts of us are corrupted by false motivations and want to sell cheap gospels. That's why in this text it's so important to realize that elders, you have a big responsibility. You have a huge responsibility to keep the pastors in this church, the, the ruling elders, to keep the, the pastors in this church honest, honest to the gospel, preaching the whole gospel, and honest to caring for the congregation. 
And the truth is, none of us have pure motives. I know that as much as I wish I could say, I would sacrifice everything for every one of you. You know, and even if I should do that, I know that I could not do that. I'm not able to do that. Not, nor was Paul. You see, Paul's point when he was talking about the fact that he didn't take money from them for the gospel was to turn around and say, look, you think it was free, but it cost a lot. I had to sew up uh, leather tents with my bare hands. The Macedonian church had to sacrifice to raise the money. You don't judge love by the price you pay for it. You judge love by the price it is willing to pay for you. And here's the real truth, right? There is only one true good shepherd. And any preacher or pastor or leader or friend or husband that raises themselves up and says that they are the true source is a false prophet, at least in that moment. The question you need to ask of any leader is who are the words and the lives that you are life that you are pointing to? Are you pointing to yourself or are you pointing to the good shepherd? And that is the test of a leader. And that can only be done again in humility, testing the humility in a sense of the pastor or the leader. Resurrection humility, let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, this passage really of rebuke, a passage which corrects us in the way we understand your gospel. It points out how we co-opt and corrupt your gospel with triumphant cultural messages. It points out, Father, how we need to be on guard against that, that we need to individually be faithful and humble and submitting to your word and, and, and to you. And we need to be testing our leaders constantly and holding each other accountable, holding ourselves to a standard of cultural, of, uh, of gospel humility, of resurrection humility. Father, we pray for your spirit to be with us. Give us discipline. Uh, give us strength, Father, to be a congregation and a people who is faithful in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.